Good morning. I'd love if you could follow along with me. We're reading um, from Acts chapter 24. Um, and please tell me at morning tea how to pronounce all the names I get wrong. Great. All right. Starting at verse 1 and reading the whole chapter. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defence. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city, and they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin, unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now, you may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and because Felix wanted to grant a favour to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Good morning, everybody. Welcome. My name's Mark. Back to meet you. 
Um, for what it's worth, Sarah, I think you actually nailed every one of those names pronunciation-wise, so well done you. Um, whilst uh, we have uh, our friend Dave uh, with us this morning, Service Leading, can I just take this opportunity to remind you that as a, an MTS apprentice, we support Dave in his training and development in gospel ministry. We're actually looking to do a little bit more fundraising to see Dave's ministry continue through to the end of the year. If you could consider whether you can support Dave in that way, please grab one of these postcards with the information, QR code and all that sort of thing on it on the welcome desk. Getting behind our MTS program as a church is a great way to see the gospel continue to go out to our world. You could also consider supporting Sam Madavi, who's going to be our MTS apprentice next year. Both these postcards are on the welcome desk. Maybe go and grab one after the service. Right now, though, why don't I pray and then we'll have a think about Acts 24 together. Uh, Almighty God, we, we do thank you for your word. Thank you that you've not left us without knowledge. Uh, thank you that you're a God who desires to be known. And thank you that you speak to us as we read. Uh, Lord, please, even through these events which seem so far away and so long ago, speak into our complicated world and our complicated lives with your grace and your truth. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I don't want to sound alarmist when I say this, so just you know, bear that in mind. But I think that uh, we live in a society which, uh, socially and politically speaking, uh, there is a great deal of anti-Christian sentiment around at the moment. A couple of weeks ago, I heard a lady named Vanessa Cheng uh, speak about the state of religious freedom in Australia. Vanessa is the executive officer of the Australian Association of Christian Schools, and she spends much of her time in Canberra lobbying politicians around issues related to religious freedom. And she shared a few graphs that helpfully kind of demonstrate the landscape uh, of Australian ethics over the last six years and how much they have shifted in an anti-Christian direction. So I'll show you this, this first graph here. It's a snapshot from November 2016, 2017 rather, excuse me, looking at a number of issues that Christians have particular stances on, such as abortion and euthanasia and gender self-ID laws. And she showed how the landscape back here in 2017 was actually quite radically different from where we are right now. So if you could go to the next slide, thanks, Eric. It was over the last six years the way that the legal landscape in Australia around these issues has changed. Obviously, same-sex marriage became the law of the land back in 2017. Uh, since then, every state has legalised abortion all the way up until birth under certain circumstances. Uh, almost all states now have some form of voluntary assisted dying or euthanasia. Uh, the New South Wales version of that bill comes into effect in 10 days' time, in case you're unaware, so please pray for Christian doctors over the next few weeks. Uh, many states since then have passed gender self-ID laws so that individuals can nominate what gender they want listed on their birth certificate, regardless of whether they've undergone gender reassignment surgery. Uh, there is legal... Uh, uh, legislation which now criminalises any attempt to change or suppress somebody's sexual orientation or gender identity, which includes things like praying for that person, now criminal act in a number of states. The New South Wales version of that bill will be here next year, likely. And the expectation is actually in 12 months from now, uh, November 2024, on the next slide, that... Uh, all states will have almost all kind of their suite of legislation around these issues by the end of next year. 
Uh, now, there's been lots of debate uh, in the media uh, and in political circles around these issues over that time, and one common thread that has been unmissable, I think, if you're paying attention, is the view that orthodox biblical Christianity and what we teach on topics like these is dangerous and harmful. Uh, the view of many of the politicians driving these changes and the people who are voting for them is that Christianity is dangerous and any Christian influence in our society has got to be stopped or curtailed, restricted, because it stirs up harm and hatred. Now, that idea, it's not just showing up in the courtrooms in Australia, it's showing up in the classrooms and in the common rooms and in the living rooms as well. Over the last six years, I don't know if you've noticed, but I think that there's been more and more Christians who are being called on to defend their faith, defend what they believe from accusations of hatred and intolerance. The Christian faith is now being seen as a threat in all of those sorts of ways. Uh, as we come to Acts chapter 24 this morning, that's the mood in the air in Caesarea as well. I think this part, this tail end of the book of Acts, is actually sort of written to answer that question and delve into that question of whether Christianity is a threat. That's the question looming over this whole section. Is Christianity really a threat? Uh, you might remember that by this point in the story, the Apostle Paul has been arrested in Jerusalem. He went there bringing some money for famine relief. But an angry mob has attacked him and he's been, there's been this sort of near riot. Paul's been taken into custody. Uh, in chapter 23, if you read that in your home groups this past week, you'll know that there was an assassination attempt on Paul's life. And so now he's been transferred from Jerusalem up to Caesarea on the coast, about 100 k's north of Jerusalem. That's sort of the Roman administrative centre of the region. Think Canberra. That's basically Caesarea. And Paul is now going to stand trial before the governor over this whole region a man named Felix. That's what our passage picks up on today. As I said, I think that the question that this whole chapter is answering is, is Christianity a threat? And the answer that it's going to give is, well, it depends. <laughs> From a public perspective, no. The answer is no. Christianity is not a threat to the public order. But at a, at a personal level, this chapter is going to say to us that, yes, the Christian faith is actually a threat to you at a personal level. So let's look at each of those things in turn. First of all, uh, from verses 1 to 21, this passage is going to say, no, publicly, Christianity is not a threat. Now, look at verse 1 there. The passage starts uh, with the arrival of Paul's accusers, and they're led by this Jewish lawyer named Tertullus, who starts kind of flattering Felix, the governor. Have a read from verse 2. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation everywhere, and in every way, most excellent Felix. We acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. He's sort of buttering him up, right? Buttering up the judge. It's a kind of shady lawyer move to do. But it's particularly egregious when you know a little bit about what Felix was like. Felix uh, was actually a freed slave who had risen to the level of governor. He was the first freed slave to rise to that level in the whole Roman Empire. 
And Felix was known for being particularly brutal towards his enemies. Lots of records of him slaughtering, crucifying his political rivals. Now, the first century historian uh, Tacitus, he writes about Felix, and he said that Felix was a master of cruelty and lust, and that he exercised his powers as the powers of a king, but with the spirit of a slave. (laughs) That's who Felix was. And so here is Tertullus, the lawyer, right at the start, just kind of giving a big thumbs up to Felix, saying, Felix, we really like what you've done with this Judean region lately, the way you've been dealing with your rivals, great stuff. Oh, look, would you, would you see who's in your courtroom today, Felix? It's another enemy. Maybe you could deal with him the same way you've dealt with all of your other rivals as well. That's essentially what Tertullus is saying here at the start. And then in verses 5 and 6 come the accusations that they're throwing against Paul. And there's really three of them, three accusations against Paul. Uh, look there from verse 5. The first one is this, we found this man to be a troublemaker stirring up riots among Jews all over the world. He's a troublemaker. It causes problems wherever this message goes that he's bringing. Now, I think that that's an accusation, actually, that we experience as Christians in some small way anyway, Uh, that that our faith causes trouble for people. If you come across that, maybe maybe your family has said to you, you know, why, why is it that you're never at our family gatherings on a Sunday? That doesn't seem right. Uh, why is it that you won't baptise your kids in accordance with our culture and our tradition? You know, why is it that you won't offer sacrifices to your ancestors like we all do? The, the implication of those questions is that you're causing trouble for the family, right? Or, or maybe in the workplace you've, you've come across this. Uh, the colleague says to you, you know, everyone just goes along with this. Why have you got to be such a stick in the mud? Can't you just get on board? Or, you know, well, everyone bends the rules and just overlooks that part. Why are you being so stubborn about this? Your Christianity is causing trouble. That's kind of the opinion. Or in the media, and the social media, you've seen these kinds of things, that, that Christians are slowing these great changes that the world wants to make, just getting in the way of progress towards euthanasia and abortion and gender fluidity. Your, your Christian faith, it's causing trouble. That accusation comes our way too, I think. The second accusation that they give to Paul here in verse 5 is that he's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect, saying that, you know, Paul's, he's a nutcase. He's gone off the deep end, right? What he believes is so out there now. And you notice how he mentions that it's a Nazarene sect, Nazareth up in Galilee. It's a very deliberate mention from Tertullus because Galilee had been the home of a number of rebels against the empire over previous decades. And so Tertullus is trying to say, well, he's guilty by association. He's from that place where all the enemies come from. That's his second accusation. The third accusation, verse 6 there, he says he even tried to desecrate the temple. Now, desecrating a temple in the Roman Empire, that's a capital offence. So here is Tertullus saying he deserves the death penalty. Can't you see? It's, it's plain. It's obvious. It's a serious accusations that they're throwing at Paul. And then from verse 10, you start to see how Paul kind of responds to these accusations. And before we kind of get into them and and think about what does Paul say here, I want you to just notice Paul's kind of demeanour, his attitude in this as his life is on trial. Uh, He replies to Felix with respect, right, but also with boldness. Paul's, he's not a pushover, here. He stands up for himself. He ultimately stands up for Jesus, but he's not being rude about it. He's respectful but firm. And I think that's a great model for us to bear in mind 
as we have to give answer for our faith and stand up for Jesus in various ways in our lives. So what is it that Paul actually says in reply, in in a respectful yet bold kind of a way? What does he say? Well, firstly, he answers this accusation about being a troublemaker. Have a read from verse 11. He says, You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or storing up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city, and they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. He's kind of quite matter-of-fact about it, isn't he? And the facts are on his side. Uh, it was less than a fortnight ago. You know, if, if I'd done the things you accused me of, there'd be witnesses, but where are they? It's just you. Uh, he's got nothing to fear from the truth, you see, and so he, he brings the truth into the courtroom in his defence. And I think it's, again, helpful for us to see Paul kind of defend himself in that way, because it teaches us that we can reply in a similar way when there are accusations against us and our faith for causing trouble. You know, if, if your family accuses you of not loving the family because you're not on board with everything they're on board with, you can say, no, I, I do love my family. That's, that's not true. I, I do respect my parents. Here, let me, let me explain that to you. You know, if you get called a bigot at work because you're refusing to participate in Pride Week, you can say, no, that's not true. I don't hate anyone. Show me where I have mistreated any any person. You can bring the truth into the conversation and defend yourself in that way. Rely on the facts. That's what Paul does here. He's not a troublemaker. What about the, the second accusation that he's part of this, you know, silly cult? Well, read from verse 14 again. He says, however, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that's in accordance with the law and that's written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have. And there will be a, that there will be a resurrection of the righteous, both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. He says, you're accusing me of being in some sort of offshoot sect or cult. Uh-uh. I believe in Yahweh, the same as you, the God of the Old Testament. I believe, in fact, everything that's written there in the Bible, the law, the prophets, I believe in every way. No, I'm part of the mainstream. That's his argument, right? He could have just as well said this. You know what? Actually, that doesn't stick because I believe Isaiah 53 that talks about the suffering servant who will come and die for the sins of many. I believe that. You don't. I believe in Psalm 16. Uh, that God's chosen one would not uh, would die but not see decay, that he would rise again. I believe that part of the Bible. You don't. I believe Psalm 118, that God's Messiah would be rejected but that he'd become the cornerstone. I believe that. You don't. I'm mainstream, you see. They're the ones who've lost track of the Old Testament. Why am I being called the, the offshoot, the sect, the cult? No, that doesn't stick. I just believe the Bible. That's Paul's logic. And And... That's quite contemporary again, isn't it? If you read the newspapers really any given week, you will find references to Bible-believing Christianity, such as we subscribe to here, now being described as a fundamentalist kind of a viewpoint. The F word is labelled against us. Evangelicals like us, uh, we are the ones that the world thinks have gone off the deep end. Uh, We take the Bible seriously Are you kidding me? What sort of craziness is that? That's the world's thinking. 
But, you know, it's not just the world who's accusing Christians of being lunatics like that either. It's actually even so-called Christians as well. Progressive Christians will label people like us as fundamentalists these days. And I would want to say, similar to Paul, against that kind of an accusation, hang on a minute. Uh, Yes, I still believe the whole Bible. Uh, I believe that Jesus died to absorb the wrath of God. I believe that he really rose physically from the dead. I believe that you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God, yes. That's the same thing that Christians have believed for 2,000 years. So how is it that we're the nut jobs? Uh, How is it that we are the fundamentalists? Our beliefs actually haven't shifted anywhere for 2,000 years. If you don't believe those things, it's because your beliefs have shifted. We're part of the mainstream. I think it's really striking that Luke actually records this kind of an accusation against Christians for us to read all these years later because it shows us that this is nothing new. Being part of the mainstream, you will be accused of being a lunatic. The apostles were accused of being radicals and extremists. And so Luke here is kind of saying to us, don't be surprised if people think that your beliefs are really far out there. If they call you fundamentalists, if they call you lunatics, you're in the mainstream if you believe the Bible. And that accusation's actually always been around from day one. So look, Paul here, he says, I'm no troublemaker. You can't prove the things that you're accusing me of, stirring up riots. And I'm not a cult leader either. I just believe the Bible. I'm part of the mainstream. And then thirdly, to that third accusation, he says, no, I didn't desecrate the temple. Look what he says, verse 17. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor, to present offerings, and I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. Paul says he flat out denies these, these accusations against him. He's demonstrating, you see, that the Christian faith is not a threat to public order. That is not what the Christian faith is about. But he does admit to one thing here. If you picked up on that in his defense in verse 21, he says, there is one thing which I will admit to, which they really hate. And he says, it's, it's one thing that I, I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. <laughs> you see how he's kind of flipped the tables on them there. You want to accuse me of something? Well, accuse me of this and I'll, I'll, I'll say that I'm guilty. I believe in the resurrection of the dead. That's what really gets to them. I kind of I love the way that Paul does that, that he kind of goes from being on the back foot here to being on the front foot. You know, when, when all of the eyes are on you because you're being accused, that's a really fantastic opportunity to proclaim the truth of the gospel, isn't it? To say, no, 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 those things that you're saying about me, they're not true, but I'll tell you what is true that explains why I live my life the way that I do. Jesus. Now, I wonder what what might that look like for you to do that in practice? When when you feel like your faith is on trial, how might you turn the tables and actually proclaim the gospel, proclaim the truth to them? I'd suggest to you that a good way to think about this is trying to bring the name of Jesus into the conversation. Uh, A couple of days ago, I was getting my hair cut, and as often happens, you make chit-chat with the barber. They asked me what I do for work. I said, I'm a pastor, you know, 
it kills the conversation very quickly. And so they're frantically looking for something else they can talk about. And they say, oh, well, uh, what did you do before that? Fine, talk about your previous job. I said, oh, okay, I worked at a bank. Blah, blah. And he said, why did you become a pastor? So I said, well, I became a Christian and I came to believe that Jesus is the most important person in the world and other people need to hear about him. You see, you can just bring the name of Jesus into a conversation there. This is what I believe. If I was particularly bold, you could ask a follow-up question and say, well, how about you? Do you have any faith of any sort? Your circumstances will be different than mine, obviously, but I wonder, have you thought about that question of how can you move from being on defence to offence, if you like, to actually proclaiming the name of Jesus when people take issue with your faith? Maybe that would be a good thing for you to discuss at morning tea after church with one another, help one another to figure that out. Well, after all of this trial, uh, at the end of it all, Felix, in verse 22, he sort of hand waves it. He just sort of says, ah, he adjourns the proceedings, sees that there's no real charge here against Paul. And so verse 23, he gives him this sort of light-touch jail sentence, keeps him locked up, but, you know, allows his friends to come and visit and to care for his needs and that sort of thing. And it's actually in that context, after the trial, where Paul sits in a jail cell for the next two years that we see the second thing this passage is trying to teach us. Whilst Christianity is not a threat, publicly speaking, this next interaction is going to show us that at a personal level, yes, Christianity is a threat to you personally because it will turn your life upside down. Uh, so Luke records for us there in verse 24 that Felix and his wife Drusilla come and sort of take a private audience with Paul. Uh, whilst he's in jail. Now, Felix uh, was Drusilla's second husband and Drusilla was Felix's third wife, okay? Uh, Drusilla, we're told she has a, a Jewish background and so perhaps she's, she's heard some of what Paul's talking about. Maybe she's open to the gospel. We don't really know why. We do know from Felix, though, that he went and visited Paul because he was looking for a bribe. He wanted a kickback. Now, regardless, they've come to Paul and Paul takes the opportunity to evangelise them. And he speaks to them in verse 24 about faith in Christ Jesus. Now, that is that we must put our faith in Jesus to save us. Not faith in ourselves to save ourselves, not faith in anyone or anything else, but faith in Jesus. That's the essence of the Christian message. That's what Paul spoke to them about. But Luke also records intriguingly here that there were three topics of discussion in verse 25 that he spoke about. It was righteousness self-control, and the judgment to come. Now, that's an interesting selection of theology to bring into conversation, isn't it? Righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Why those three things? My theory on this is that those three categories are, if you like, kind of a way of talking about the entirety of the Christian life, uh, from the past to the present to the future. Let's have a think about that. In terms of the past, righteousness, I imagine Paul would have been saying that we are made righteous by faith in Jesus, that, that on the cross as Jesus dies, he's taking all of the guilt for our sin and swapping with us, giving us his perfect righteousness when we put our faith in him. That event, that swap, that becoming righteous, that's at the start of every Christian's walk with God. And then in the present as a sinner who has been justified, made right with God, well, self-control, that's how we live our lives now. That's a, actually a pretty good two-word summary 
of all of Christian ethics, if you like. As forgiven sinners clothed in Christ's righteousness, we now live lives of self-control. That's a big theme in the New Testament. Uh, Self-control means that we keep our desires in check. Uh, We make decisions now based on what is good and right rather than on just our feelings and whatever we want to do. And that idea is really quite countercultural, both then and now. Right? Uh, Felix, he, as I've said, he was a Roman aristocrat. The culture of Rome, he, he would have been right into self-indulgence. That is, he would have had everything that he'd wanted kind of at the snap of his fingers, whether that's food or women, he's on his third wife by this point. Self-indulgence was the name of his game. Now, our culture is not so much into self-indulgence as it is self-expression. That's our culture. Everything that's in here has to be out there. I have to express who I am. That's our culture. But the Bible says, no, well, living under God is neither of those things. It's neither self-indulgence nor self-expression. It's self-control. That's our path as Christians. And so as we evangelize people, talk about Jesus and the hope that we found in him, Actually, this will make up some part of what we need to talk to them about, about the way that we live, our ethics around marriage and singleness and sexual morality and not getting drunk and honesty in finance and controlling our anger. Christians value self-control. That, that is our present. And then in the future, there is a judgment to come. That is, we, we understand that Jesus will return. There'll be a universal judgment according to God's standards and there will only be two outcomes of that judgment, eternal life with God or eternal condemnation in hell. Now, hell hell is sometimes seen or thought of as kind of an obstacle to evangelism. Hell's the thing you don't talk about when you're trying to evangelise somebody and share the gospel with them because it makes God seem unreasonable, you know. But you notice here that Paul's got no problem Uh, reminding Felix and Drusilla about the reality of hell. He saw it as necessary for them to know about that. And you know, actually, Jesus wasn't shy about reminding people, uh, warning people about the coming judgment. He did it an awful lot as well. It, It may actually be that as we warn people and confront people with the reality that Jesus is the judge to whom they will have to give an answer one day, that that might be the thing that God uses to draw some people to himself, to bring them from death to life. Now, as we share the gospel with others, it's really unlikely that we'll ever be in the same situation as Paul where the person that we are evangelizing to has our life in their hands. But that's the situation with Paul here because Felix was judge and jury. If Felix had decided that Paul dies, well, then Paul dies. And yet, Paul doesn't hold back, does he? He doesn't soften his punches. He explains the full implications of the gospel for him. Righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. I mean, that would have taken tremendous courage, wouldn't it, to to be so bold like that? Uh, In the 16th century, uh, there was a, a Protestant reformer in England, a guy named Hugh Latimer, and uh, he regularly preached to King Henry VIII. You know, King Henry VIII, you might remember, he's the monarch who's most famous for overindulgence, right, both in terms of food and wives. That was his deal. Uh, Well, on one occasion, Latimer was preaching to King Henry and to his court, and he was quite blunt in addressing areas of immorality. 
and it was deeply offensive to King Henry. And so King Henry summoned him and he, he told him he must come back the next Sunday and apologise and preach a better sermon to him. Uh, well, Latimer came back the next Sunday and as he began his sermon, he actually started by just talking to himself. And this is what he said. He said, Latimer, Latimer, do you remember that you are speaking before the high and mighty King Henry VIII? who has the power to command you to be sent to prison and who can have your head cut off if it please him, will you not take care to say nothing that will offend royal ears? And then he paused and he continued, Latimer, Latimer, do you not remember that you are speaking before the king of kings and lord of lords, before him at whose throne King Henry VIII will stand, before him to whom one day you will have to give an account. Latimer, Latimer, be faithful to your master and declare all of God's word. And then he preached the exact same sermon that he'd preached the week before. <laughs> you know, like Paul, Latimer was a man who feared God more than he feared man. And so both men were able to boldly proclaim the gospel and its confronting truths because they knew who they were answering to. I wonder, friends, who is it that you fear in this life? Is it God or is it man? Interestingly, as Felix hears this gospel preached to him, Luke tells us that he is afraid in verse 25. Uh, but it's, it's not the kind of godly and healthy fear of God that Paul has. The word that, that Luke uses here is that Felix is actually terrified. It's quite ironic, isn't it? Uh, that the one who started this chapter sitting in judgment is now being told that he's subject to judgment. There's a great reversal that's happened here. He is the most powerful man in the whole region, bar none, and yet this message about Jesus has rattled him to his core because it is a threat to him personally and his conscience is starting to realise it. Felix is afraid because he understands that the gospel will come in and upturn his life because Felix knows that he's not living right and that there would have to be changes in his life. And so Felix, put your faith in Christ and you no longer have to fear the judgment of God because Christ will have taken it for you. All that will be left for you is acceptance and vindication. Felix, put your trust in Christ. You lack self-control, but he'll change your heart and he'll, he'll change you so that you can live differently. Felix, you're a man who lacks righteousness, but Christ will give that to you and he'll work that in you over time. Felix, why won't you do that? Why are you afraid, Felix? It appears it's because he didn't want his life to change. And I want to speak to you. If you are someone who is keeping Jesus at arm's length, if you've heard the message of the Christian gospel but not yet submitted to yourself, yourself to it, why not? It's good to be honest with ourselves as we think about this. You know, those accusations that you hear against the Christian faith, there's not a lot of truth in them. Is it because 
you would be required to change in your life. At least be honest with yourself about that. For us, though, who are Christians, who are followers of Jesus already, as we read chapter 24, we should want to be like Paul, shouldn't we? Like Paul who says, verse 16, my conscience is clear before God and man. We live our lives in a way that does nothing to disturb the peace. Our our gospel message is not a threat to our country that kind of needs to be stamped out and curtailed, but our gospel will change people's lives. And so we want to be people who are bold, who are confident like Paul, who fear God more than we fear any other person, and who share God's word with all of its sharp edges with a world that desperately needs to hear it. I want to pray for us that we'd be those people now. Almighty God, we thank you for your transforming gospel. We thank you that the message of your gospel has found us. I thank you for the faith that you have given to us to believe it. And thank you for the way that it has turned our lives upside down. God, would you help us to be confident that your gospel is good news for this world to hear. Help us to trust you and to fear you as we hold out this gospel message to a world that needs to hear it. And Lord, I do pray for anyone here today who is keeping you at arm's length. Lord, would you help them to realise that the change that you would make in their lives is for their good, that you want nothing but good for them and that you love them. Lord, would you help us to help them to realise that today? I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.